0: I'm David. I'm an organist. I'm Ian, and I'm a priest. And we're welcoming you today to a special episode of the podcast, All Things Right and Musical. In this episode, uh, I'm going to be joined by a couple special guests, and we are going to nerd out musically about the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge. Ian, did you listen to
1: the Nine Lessons and Carol service on the radio? you know i did not this year um and i i, I heard a, from a number of people who normally do who who did not this year for whatever reason
0: yeah well i mean one reason we get into this in our conversation one reason could be that it ended up not being um a live broadcast this year
1: right okay. right i i i wonder if that just sort of um broke the magic or something
0: well, it, it is. I mean, it is an interesting issue, and, and maybe something we could talk about in a future episode. You know, what does it mean um, for a service to really be live at a certain time and place, and to be able to to tune into that live stream or live broadcast? Yeah, because it's something you know, it's something we've all sort of wrestled with. I think during this time, how how we're <laughs> presenting, how we're presenting worship sure.
1: to each other. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and yeah, that's a, that's a, we we should, can and should have another conversation about that because it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Um, the ways that we're, that we're forced to think about liturgy that we haven't really before.
0: Right. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jessica Nelson and Michael Smith. Welcome to this special episode of All Things Right and Musical. I'm here with uh, Jessica Nelson. Jessica, would you introduce yourself?
2: Um, I would love to. My name is Jessica Nelson, and I work at St. Andrew's Cathedral in Jackson, Mississippi. At St. Andrew's, I'm the organist and choir master. Um, I'm also the director of the Mississippi Conference on Church Music and Liturgy, and a member of the Standing Commission on Liturgy and Music.
0: And also joining us today is Michael Smith. Michael, would you say hello?
3: Hey, I'm Michael Smith. I'm Minister of Music at St. Thomas White Marsh, which is outside of Philadelphia. And uh, and I'm on the board of RSCMA. And uh, that's about it.
0: And we all have something in common and that we listened to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College this year. I think it's a service that all three of us really enjoy and look forward to every year so i thought it'd be good to get together and talk about the service um, especially because this year's service was unusual in a a few respects Um, we knew you know a week or so going into the service that there would be no congregation present and then that um, changed yet again when it was announced that uh, the choir themselves would not be able to be present for the service so instead of hearing the live broadcast of a service occurring on Christmas Eve, um, listeners around the world heard a taped rehearsal of that service for the first time. So I think we should count ourselves fortunate that they had the foresight to record that that run-through. I mean, it was really a complete service that they conducted in the chapel uh, for us to listen to. But that does that does change things. I mean, what were your... What were your reactions to that and your impressions while while listening on Christmas Eve?
2: Well, I'll be the first to admit that I didn't listen on Christmas Eve. I was uh, running errands and wanted to wait until I could really focus on it. So I waited until Christmas Day when I would be driving from Jackson to Tupelo, which is about three hours, because I knew that I could, you know, focus as much as driving would let me focus on something else. Um, So I didn't get the experience of listening to it along with what seems like everybody else in Christendom and, and offering hot takes and live tweeting and all that. But I, I did listen on Christmas day and I thought it was really, you know, on the whole, I thought it was very spectacularly well done considering all of the, the circumstances um so yeah I, you know if if i did not know that it was a dress rehearsal that was recorded I'd, i don't think that i would have realized that maybe with the exception of the the acoustics being just a little bit different so
3: well i also did not listen on christmas eve in fact i only listened to it yesterday um, uh, in preparation for this, uh, so I was I was pleasantly surprised. I I thought, yeah, the I knew that the acoustics would be a bit different, but the overall the the ensemble and tuning was just blew me away. Given the circumstances, I thought it was just just stunningly done. And some surprises, um, you know. We've been listening for a long time, and it, it's just nice to hear a new take on it.
0: Well so that leads me to a question then. Would would either or both of you have been more inclined to listen to the service on Christmas Eve if you had known what you were hearing was actually live from the chapel?
2: Oh yeah. Um I think there's the whole the whole idea of of intent behind something. And it's like the difference between watching a live streamed Eucharist and one that's pre-recorded. You know if you know going in that it's pre-recorded you just think oh I'll, I'll listen to it whenever but if you know that it's being live streamed you know that it, there's an immediacy there that you don't get otherwise
3: So yeah I, I i don't know i i was i was working my butt off this christmas eve as i know you all were and i was in the office at 9 a.m um so i don't know if i would have listened if it had been live but the one thing that makes me listen when it is live, is there, there's that magic moment right after Michael Barone stops talking and, um, you hear the, the DF sharp G and the whole world seems to breathe together waiting for the the entry. And, and, and when you're like, when I'm usually watching, I'm on Twitter and people are commenting and it feels like something I'm doing with people that I've, that I've known and people I've just met. And it's, it's just a really cool experience to listen together.
0: Yeah, I had I had a similar feeling, um, but I did you know that that morning in the United States uh, because it airs at at nine a.m. Um, in my time zone, I made a point to listen, and I in fact invited my choir to join me on Zoom, and so we had. I mean, I think I think I feel okay saying we we kind of had a group cry like as the service started, and we all knew that it wasn't live, but that was sort of a special thing that um, you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be in church ourselves that night. So to be able to share that sort of Christmas Eve musical experience um, that way was special. But what about um, what about the service itself? I mean, you mentioned it was immaculately sung. Um, you, you know, even though we didn't have the, the connection in time to what was going on in Cambridge, we did have, probably for the first time, um, a connection to the acoustic. Because we heard the real live acoustic of Kings rather than you know whatever kind of reverb the BBC pumps in after the fact.
3: Yeah, and uh, I, I, it struck me while they were saying the Lord's Prayer. Obviously, it was just the choir and the readers, but uh, how intentional it just there seemed to be um, huge intent on the part of the choir to be present and to be really doing this and not as a dress rehearsal, which which I appreciated
0: yeah I wonder you know because the choir knew that they were well they probably knew that they was they were film they were recording it as a contingency, so there must have been a real sense of you know let's take this fully seriously and and fully enter the, into this as a service do you i I do find myself wondering though you know if some of the tempos were just a little bit slower than they might have otherwise been. You know, if if there was a red light on for a live broadcast, rather than a red light on just going onto a tape, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, adrenaline
3: adds like 20
0: clicks to the metronome.
2: Yeah, yeah, and just feeding off the energy of the people that are there listening in person.
0: Sure, but but you know, again, they they no matter what, they knew that they wouldn't have that. So like, even the quote unquote live service that they were planning for on on the 23rd, the 24th um how much adrenaline would there have been in in that empty room knowing that it was going out live i mean that's a hard that's a hard thing to know that that hypothetical
3: i did think some of the tempos were slower than usual but like for of the father's love begotten that was almost in one which which was really cool to hear um so there was enough variation some things that i would expect to be fast were slow and some things that i would expect to be slower were faster i think it may just be you know Daniel Hyde's uh, sort of take on, on Tempo.
2: Yeah. And I think you trade some of that exuberance. Um, What you got from that trade was just a remarkable amount of control and especially over the phrasing, um, and precision, um, which I thought was really remarkable. Um, but Michael mentioned Of the Father's Love Begotten, what struck me the most about that was the organ registration. It was like this huge full registration, and that's not, it's not something I typically associate with that text or with the chant, but it worked so incredibly well. <laughs> it it just really convinced me and I think I might be sold on that for the next time I do it
0: it was grand yeah yeah I I really love that arrangement and it's special to hear it at this service I mean King's recorded it under David Wilcox and I'm sure other times too but um I can't I can't think offhand when the last time it's been sung at the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols has been
3: you know, another thing that w- was really fascinating to me and, and, and made me tear up a little bit or the creative opportunities that they took um, with the hymn singing that um, I think they were planning to do it, you know, if it had been live, but because you can't have a congregation singing, rather than just kind of plowing through it like you would with the full, full chapel singing, the acapella, the first verse of Heart the Herald Angels Sing was acapella. That was stunning. Really creative, turning things on their head, uh, and 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 taking that what could have been a challenge and turning it to a creative opportunity.
2: Daniel Hyde mentioned that in his his little introduction, which I guess was for uh, Minnesota Public Radio, that since they couldn't sing hymns in their normal way, that they would pay particular attention to making those interesting and creative and and feeling like there was some, some contrast between that and the anthems, and I think that that was really successful.
0: Yeah, someone was was commenting, you know, what a shame it is that we didn't have the David Wilcox chord on "Word." We had a very similar chord, but we didn't have the chord that people are so obsessed with. And I sort of commented that, well, you know, you, a, a unison arrangement of the last hymn without a congregation present uh, is not really is not really going to work in this context. So I think the the choice to go with the David Hill and the descant um, was the right was the right. Yeah, is that in sure.
3: the Noel book? That david hill edited
0: you know i have i have noel 2 upstairs and i'm not sure those if are in there or not you,
3: i don't know if I your listeners know about that series it's a fabulous series three volumes by novello of christmas stuff david hill edited
0: we'll make sure that we we link to those books in the in the show notes so people can can peruse them yeah everybody's entitled to their i mean this this is the amazing thing about this service right is that it's so beloved to all of us like we feel we feel that we have that kind of ownership in it that we expect certain things and and uh we could be surprised sort of unpleasantly so when they're not when they're not present
2: yeah um but it just reminded me of conversations i've had with parishioners where you know they've been surprised and disappointed when i haven't done something when i haven't done their favorite thing um at Christmas. And I just want to say, yeah, but what we did was, you know, somebody else's favorite thing. It's their turn to get their favorite thing. You don't always get your favorite thing, but it is weird that we all feel this like ownership over what somebody 3000 miles away is doing.
0: We do feel ownership. And, and I think, you know, the, the this here was tailored to, to kind of the, the needs of the whole world. Like, a. a I just sense that this is what people needed to hear—these um, kind of intimate, these more intimate carols yeah. in the empty chapel. I mean, there seemed to be an effort to sort of keep a lid on things. Um, I was, and as I was re-listening to the service today, everything is really quite is rather quiet until you get to Philip Moore's "The Angel Gabriel."
3: Yeah, I I, I agree that uh, the the intimate choices. I mean. My favorite thing in the whole service was the How Shall I Fitly Meet Thee to um, Passion Chorale. Oh,
4: my and God. I
3: think that's very intentional. And the, the Ludoslowski, I mean, who knew? Did you know? No.
0: <laughs> well, well, our podcast listeners knew because I, I aired it in the preview. But the, the recording that I aired in the preview um, was for Trebles. And it was also Piano and Trebles. And, and it's exquisitely sung. I'll, I'll link to it again in the show notes to this episode. Um, so i felt like having the men sing it and then also having the organ play it and that sort of lack of percussiveness i mean it's still a really really compelling piece but i sort of missed i missed hearing it in the range that he wrote it and i missed the percussiveness of the piano and i know this is heresy i almost wish they had wheeled out a piano for that or just i don't know maybe beefed up the organ registration slightly i think it could have used a little bit more Mm. a little bit more chif or a little bit more definition or something
2: um I had seen some comment about how shall I fitly meet thee set to the Passion Chorale, um, but it still almost overwhelmed me when I heard it. Just because it, I don't know, um, that immediate association with a sacred head and, like, just that little melding together, that little, um, like, two puzzle pieces locking together or something. It it was just, it was really stunning. It was really, really beautiful.
3: Yeah, you could use it as an advent in Troy almost, you know, really effectively. Yeah, It's like a stable lamp. It's like any opportunity to take people out of the saccharine. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And then to follow it with a tender shoot with, which is hopeful and optimistic. So, so brilliant.
2: Yeah. I really think that this was one of the most well-planned lessons and carols from Kings that I've seen in quite some time. And, you know, part of that was, the the lineup of text and text with music and and part of that was the more intimate aspects of it um i don't know how i don't know if, if dan hyde has complete control over the programming for this i'd assume he does um
0: don't you think he has I to mean,
2: it seems that way, but you know, maybe there's also some sort of liturgy committee that sits around and like.
0: Oh God, let's hope
2: not. <laughs> and tells them what to do, um, but it was just really masterfully done, and and maybe he did have an in his mind thinking about the needs of church musicians an entire continent away who needed to hear something hopeful and.
3: I wonder how many programs he went through, you know, cause yeah. he might've had a different program
2: in mind in January.
0: Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what his spreadsheet looks like.
2: Oh. <laughs> That'd be a fascinating thing to see.
0: Well, and I think we should, we should take a minute to to look at a change that Daniel Hyde introduced last year. Um, cause this, this was definitely something that piqued my interest in 2019 which is that he had only one carol following the first lesson. Mm -hmm. And he continued that this year, just a single carol after the first lesson rather than two. And I think in a way it maybe helps the service sort of get off its feet uh, or get onto its feet a little bit faster, Mm -hmm. but he he sort of took that a step further this year by moving the, um, Adam Lee bounden by Ord. So to the point that it was actually sung before the first lesson. So in, in sort of listening back to it, it's almost as if it's uh, the, the first lesson sort of begins with the singing of mm-hmm. that carol, um, that you're, you're into the Genesis and, and the fall of mankind mm-hmm. right away, rather than sort of like, oh, aren't we happy that it's Christmas? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm eager to see, you know, what happens in future years. Is that a, a 2020 adaptation without a congregation? Or is that something that um, going to happen to sort of enter us into that part of the liturgy, enter us into that first? Reading. And
2: did he call it an Invitatory Carol? Is that what how he described it?
0: I think it is. Let me check right now. I've got the service leaflet. Oh
2: wait, no, it's not. I must have made that up.
0: Oh, so yeah, this year it's not called an Invitatory Carol, as it, I think it is some years. It's only it's only listed as Carol. Yeah,
2: it's like an
0: overture. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, it's like the theme song for Lessons and Carols. It tells you everything you need to know. It's kind of like how I guess the 3's company theme song tells you everything you need to know about 3's company. It just tells you everything you need to know about why you're there for lessons and carols. It's because of Adam.
0: I I don't know. I am am I allowed to say this? I, I don't know that I really like that piece all that much or I just I feel like it's I feel like it's overdone.
3: It is overdone.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I way overdone.
3: I yeah, it's a good piece and it's overdone.
0: <laughs> and I and if you look at you know the last 20 odd years of, of this I think they've been careful about trying to rotate it out and get some new things in like the Warlock um, Adam lay and who else who else have they used in there
3: they need to use Frank Bowles <laughs>
0: Well, I was gonna say. I mean, you can sort of have your pick of of uh, composers' settings of of this text these days. It's like every almost everyone seems to have written one. Yeah. Frank Bowles yeah. is a very good one. I understand people are very fond of that. I don't
2: know that one. I'll have to find it.
3: Oh, it's make your organ scholar play it though. It's really hard.
2: that it some people think that it doesn't count unless it's the ward or the warlock yeah um those people would be wrong
3: i'd like to talk about the more yeah which one The angel gabriel
2: oh oh yeah like it was so angular and just kind of wild and wonky and but i loved it i thought it was really successful
3: but then he it, it takes it down with the gentle Mary, you know, and one treble sing to me, "Be as it pleaseth God," and everybody else comes in. She said,
2: "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Oh, I'd forgotten about that. That was fantastic.
3: I loved I loved how the accompaniment is it's like a Schubert leader it's like not just background I think Judith Weir does this really well with her organ parts too they're 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 kind of moto perpetuo but they they keep they're organically related to what the choir's doing but not just kind of doubling or supporting I just thought it was a thrilling piece
0: yeah yeah I liked it a lot better this year than I did last year for some reason maybe uh, the the ground was tilled in my ears uh with last year's premiere and this year I was really ready to hear it again it's like the
3: ride of spring you know the first time there was a riot next time everybody loved it
0: <laughs> well no i seemed i seemed to be in the minority last year i think but the the reaction from most people for that piece was overwhelmingly positive and i was kind of lukewarm on it but i i've really I've really taken a liking to it this year.
3: The ending, I just, I'm, I was on the edge of my seat again. I was sitting on the bed actually, so I was on the edge of my bed, but it, it just, it's so exciting.
0: Yeah, and and you got to think that a lot of those personnel have now lived with that piece for a year, so they can kind of return to it with a little extra, a little extra flair, a little extra confidence.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I saw the Sussex carol and the von williams arrangement i originally thought that perhaps they were going to use the other tune von williams minor key sort of tune that's in oxford book of carols
4: Mm -hmm. um
3: so i was surprised to hear the the major key one Hmm. do you know that minor he uses it in a in an orchestral piece
0: i don't know yeah i can't I know what you're talking about. That's in the Fantasia on Christmas yeah, Carols. Yeah, yeah. No, that that arrangement, um, as it as it turns out, was exactly what they used um, a year ago, isn't it, mm. Sussex? Yeah. So that that was actually the Invitatory Carol um, in 2019, and now I'm curious to see if I'm the only one still calling it that. <laughs> Are they still calling it the Invitatory yeah, Carol?
4: That's right.
3: I also thought it was interesting that the only what I would call sugary piece. Was the Carter um, a maiden most gentle? Yeah, which I love. I love, and uh, but it was the only, you know, yeah, sort of sugary piece.
2: And sugary is not necessarily bad, especially if you're like, um, you know, that setting of Angel Gabriel and some of that other stuff.
0: Yeah, maybe we're maybe we're seeing a. Uh, at least in these last two couple of years, kind of a shift away from anything that can be perceived as too sugary. Yeah. Cause the Holly and the Ivy would be kind of an opportunity to do something really, um, middle of the road. And, and we had anything but that with the, with the Ludoslavsky arrangement.
2: I just, I thought it was really interesting. It was just, it was such a new and surprising take on, you know, this carol that you've sung your whole entire life. Um, that I, I thought it was really refreshing. And, and some people may object to it, but I really...
3: What I loved about it was every, every other setting of the Holly and the Ivy, it's like a
2: nice, it's a Christmas carol. And
3: then you get to the part about the thorn, yeah. you know, and the prickle and you're thinking, oh, whoa, here's, a, here's a serious moment. But in this arrangement, the whole thing leads to the thorn. And it's there the whole time in the accompaniment, even when you're singing about the berry and everything else.
0: Yeah, I, I really like the June Nixon arrangement of, of this carol. Is that, is that one that you guys know?
2: I know of it, but I don't think I know it specifically. But I saw where a lot of people did it this year.
0: And King sang that 10 years ago, back in 2010, mm. as it turns out. All right, so you have you have caused me just to realize that I'm, I've missed something in the evolution of the service. Is that the name Invitatory Carol has been dropped under Daniel Hyde? As he's really he's keeping he's keeping a Carol there before the first lesson, but he's not he doesn't see it as having the same role, I guess.
3: I you know I I tend to think in general in our service leaflets for regular services I'm against the naming of every single thing the X hymn the Y hymn the Z hymn. Mm -hmm. So,
0: well, but the reason I bring that up though, is because, um, as far as I can tell, Adam Lee Bounden" has never been sung before the first lesson in that spot. So that's, yeah. So that's what I think the difference is that he's, he's kind of relating it to more what, to what comes after. Mm -hmm. And, and because of that, he's able to then drop a carol, um, after the first lesson. But then we got that really exciting bonus carol this year after, um, Oh, come all you faithful. Uh, we got the Bob Chilcott. Steel, steel, wasn't steel. that
3: something?
2: I was prepared to hate it. David, when we talked about it the other day, I was just like, oh God, this is gonna be tender and sweet, and I'm gonna hate it. And I didn't. Um I didn't hate it. It grew-
3: was like a it was a last moment of reflection before Hark the Herald wakes the baby up again.
2: Yeah, it was just it was very sweet.
0: Yeah, I thought the piece was so special um that it just it just really worked in this context. Yeah. Yeah. Did
3: am I I again and again on that piece the the tuning just seemed to me over the top wonderful this year. Uh-huh. Real really mo- great moments of just intonation and 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 balance particularly in the lower three parts. I I was really blown away.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. That the technique that we were hearing from the choir is really second to none. Um, the the unified sound that the men had in the in their in their piece, the Holly and the Ivy. I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't wanting anything more technically from the choral sound. It was it was simply about <laughs> the choice to use to use the music in that range um, that I that I was wondering about.
3: Hmm. Am I right that there had to be some some last minute subs? Uh, oh.
0: Well, from what I understood, it was the this was sort of the choir as usual. So I think we can safely assume that everybody was healthy for this. Oh, okay. Um, and if you know, if there was some, if there were any subs, uh, it would have not been for COVID reasons. In any case, because um, I think that's ultimately what prevented the choir from regathering. Uh, it was the it was the televised service, um, carols from kings, where all the men had to be. Replaced by six of the King's singers gotcha. uh, who who came in and sang the uh, sang the choral parts.
2: Hey, back to what Michael was saying about, um, or what both of y'all were saying about the technical aspects and intonation and whatnot. Um, I heard a lot of perfectly uniform vowels, which made my heart so happy, and I heard a lot of attention to. Um, not just the the beginning and middle of phrases, but the ends of phrases as well. I feel like so often, um, and like I'm indicting myself as a conductor here, I get to the middle of a phrase, I get to the, you know, to the apex of a phrase, and then I just forget the rest of it. I'm like, oh, okay. And then something else happened. Um, and it's just, it's remarkable, to, remarkable to me to hear the control he has over those singers and not control like in a spooky way but you know control with phrasing and um, and and how much you know how how and what that means for how closely they're paying attention and and what's remarkable though is that he's done this so quickly Like he's affected. This is not control that I've heard before in previous recordings that he's managed to do in such a short amount of time. It's a
3: a different way of making music almost.
2: Yeah. Um, And I think it's working. I think it's working. Yeah.
0: It is pretty surprising, you know, how, how different the choir sounds already. Um, So I just, I had on um, one of those, Uh, what I originally purchased as a two CD set of, I I guess, what was a recording of a live service back in 1998, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And the choir really sounds, um, I was listening to one, one piece in particular, um, a a ledger arrangement of the Sussex Carol, I think, and the choir was singing very fast and just sort of slightly on edge and, you know, slightly, slightly out of control. If you want to, if you want to use that comparison, um, and I just, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to hear anything quite like that <laughs> from a young Daniel Hyde. And I mean, I very seriously wonder if um, Stephen Cleary felt that the service needed to be compacted into 90 minutes uh, for broadcast reasons, and if that actually led to some faster tempo choices, because yeah. I don't think Daniel Hyde has any such compunction. Mm. I mean, you see you see the, the multiple additional verses of, oh, come all you faithful, and you just can't think that this is someone who's preoccupied with time in any way.
4: Yeah.
2: But I was super excited to hear the low star-led chieftain's verses. First, because that's my favorite. And I always want to bust it out again at Epiphany. So and maybe I'll do that this year.
0: So yeah, maybe it's only the one extra verse, but somehow it feels like more. <laughs> <laughs> Just feels like a lot more of that hymn than we've ever a had. A lot
2: more. And I think it would be really interesting to take, um, to, to take and compare Cleo recordings to Daniel Hyde recordings of the same piece just just to kind of identify some of those differences um and it's not that it's not that I think Stephen Cleo is not as good a conductor as Daniel Hyde I just think they have different priorities and that's okay um that's totally fine
3: after, after such a long time of any one way of doing things, it, it's nice to have a, a different way that can become something expected in its own right for a while and then 30, 20, 30 years, who knows later, we'll, we'll come back and with our hearing aids and do another version of this podcast
0: and talk about how different the tempos were from Daniel Hyde's.
4: Yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Well, I mean, and one, one nice thing is we have a point of comparison from like a, a quote unquote, normal year service. Mm-hmm where the opening hymn, I don't think, really sounded any different with a congregation there, with a live broadcast there. So I mean, we know to some degree, yeah, this is how he wants things to sound, um, period.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I asked this question on Christmas Eve when I saw several barbed comments flying back and forth. Do you think that Daniel Hyde was sitting in his apartment somewhere in Cambridge? listening to all of our lessons and carols and <laughs> I'm sure he was.
0: I mean, uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, and part of me wonders, was he even listening to his own? Uh, I mean, he had, he had recorded it. I'm sure he listened to it before it aired. So, you know, did he have any, any reason to listen to it on, on the airwaves as it were?
2: I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was following along on Twitter. Um, seeing what people were saying
0: but that that is an interesting thing you know we have been so enmeshed in this world of recording and putting things together and trying to live stream things when possible that you know to to con- to consider that this service too is now faced with some of those same sort of theological um, questions that's just sort of a sort of an interesting place to find ourselves at the end of this year
2: yeah. and you know there's some it it does make me feel some sort of strange sense of camaraderie with this person that I have never met before and who would not know me from um, Adam's house cat that, Oh, you know, Daniel Hyde has had some of the same struggles that I have this year. That's, you know, it's not that I have any satisfaction that either one of us has struggled about anything, but it's just, there's something, um, there's something reassuring about knowing that, you know, he's probably also, Sending out part recordings and having people send him things and stitching it all together at some point, uh, or, or doing something equally, um, making music in an equally unsatisfying way, as that is.
3: Yeah. No. No. No part of our profession, from you know the the pinnacles down to you know some little bitty parish out in the middle of nowhere, has been untouched by this.
4: Yeah.
0: One thing we didn't talk about was um, David Hill's arrangement of Away in a Manger, which is another standout for me. I mean, it was nice that um, David Hill is a name that has never appeared on a music list at at this service as far as I know. I don't think he has. Um, And to have two things by him, to have a desk and also this carol arrangement was really nice.
3: It was sumptuous and I did this year, we did Bethlehem Down on Christmas Eve, but I instead of the original version, we did David Hill's Arrangement, which has um, the first verse, just men in unison accompanied, and the third verse, the, the you know, clothe them in grave clothes is just uh, trebles with uh, accompaniment, and both of the accompaniments are just heart-wrenching alternate harmonies, and I, I it just, I've known David Hill stuff for a long time, but that experience of mine and then seeing these two on the program,
0: I I think we may see a lot more. Yeah. That's a, that's a refreshing, um, that's a refreshing addition to the, to the repertoire.
2: Michael, I'm glad you reminded me of that. Um, I'm stealing that idea for the future because I, I heard that from wherever you posted it and it was really, really stunning. And I love that Carol anyway. Um, but yeah, that was really nice.
0: That's that's in one of those, Noel. It, mu- it must be in the one that I have because I, I think I've seen it.
3: It is, it is.
2: I just, again,
3: you know, just because talking about arc and phrase and attention to detail. I thought in the dark, bleak midwinter, which, you know, we could all do in our sleep. Um, tiny little details, like in the tenor solo, uh, the ox and ass and camel, comma, which adore. Both the soloists and the organ were like, mind meld yeah uh, there to set that off it was
1: just
4: it
3: was it wasn't over the top you know a lot of times we think you know oh <laughs> oh you mean there's a comma there uh, but it was just one of those little details that that it's easy in a carol like that to even not rehearse it, right? Why would you rehearse that carol if you're King's College, right? It's dark, right? Here we go.
2: But he does it in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. You know what I mean? It's not like he's saying that he wants everybody to notice that he noticed that punctuation. It's done in a way that's relatively unfussy, but you know that it took like, several repeats of it to get it that way you know that he attended to it
3: yeah like how you use your time and preparation for a service matters
2: yeah and those little details do matter
0: yeah and it's it's little things like that that gave the service a special sense of you know really treasuring really hanging on every note on every phrase mm-hmm. um that this this music this offering this ability to sing together is so precious um, something that we've even that just that simple act of gathering together is something a year ago we didn't even really consider um ever being in question but now of course we we do every day so
3: yeah i'm expecting and i'm hopeful for all of us that that choir enrollment is going to be a boom
0: next fall
2: Uh, yeah it better be
0: well you all this has been a delight thank you so much for for chatting about the service with me and and Merry Christmas, to you both. Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So, Ian, now that you've heard that conversation, are you eager to listen to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols?
1: I am. You know, I um, I, I do love that service. I realized when I was I, I was doing a, a setting, putting together a Bible study for Advent and Christmas tide. Um, I realized one of the th- one of the things that made the most sense to do uh, was to do it around the lessons from lessons and carols. Oh right, mm-hmm. and realized in in prepping for that uh, how much how much better I like the King's college lessons than the Episcopal book of occasional service lessons. (laughs) Mm. So there's really, there's really some substantial difference. I mean, not massive. Um, it's, it's two or three readings that are significantly different, I think. Um, but I just, I just much prefer the, um, the King's college version. It just, it has some, has some better stuff, I think.
0: Well, if you're, if you're like Ian and you're ready to listen, Um, You can get to the service on the BBC, uh, Radio 4 has it, and you'll have about three weeks left to listen before that disappears there. And it's also available, as of this moment, on uh, Minnesota Public Radio. So a a couple ways to hear the service.
1: Thanks for joining us today for this episode of All Things Right and Musical. If you've enjoyed this special episode about a festival of nine lessons and carols, we hope you'll tell us about it. You can find us on the web at writeandmusical.org. That's R-I-T-E and musical.org. You can follow the hosts and the show on Twitter. Send us an email at writeandmusical at gmail.com or check out episcopalcafe.com where we're a featured podcast. You can also find out about other Episcopal shows on the podcast section of Episcopal Cafe. Take a minute to rate and review our podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you enjoyed it, why not tell a friend? A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.
2: Michael, do you want to know what I learned when I was preparing my little lessons and carols talk for David's church?
3: I would love to to know what you learned.
2: You can put this in your in your trivia file, and I'm and I keep meaning to like follow up on this and um, you know Google it some more. So Bishop Benson, who started lessons and carols at Truro. right. And- Bishop Westcott, for whom Westcott House at Cambridge is named, were the founders of the Cambridge Ghost Society. Like, they were right. ghosts. They went around investigating <laughs> normal activity. And I find this, like, so amazing. You know. Learn more about it.
3: That's fascinating. And it's it's the same same time period as Ralph Adams Cram and all that weirdo woo-woo stuff that they were into. They, I don't know, maybe they were, it must've been uh really interesting people.
2: So I think this, I think this means that we need to take a field trip and go like, some of their steps and well, we,
0: we need to hopefully find our own ghosts. I know. Yeah. I'll bring the Ecto cooler. <laughs>